This is Guns and Butter. Society is mesmerized by this myth, this official story of 9-11 being due to the Muslims. Everyone knows it. You can't challenge this myth. If you do, you're a conspiracy kook. Well, I'm sorry. Good science cuts through all that nonsense. It doesn't care. When I analyze these samples of previously molten metal, and I see iron and fluorine and manganese in abundance, it doesn't care whether I'm conservative or liberal, Republican, Democrat, Green, it doesn't care. It's just an experiment that's done, it's objective. To have people just say, I don't want to see the data, I, I, I don't want you to challenge the official story which everyone knows, you know. That, that is just so contrary to science, to logic, to reason, to humanity. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Thermite. A Case for 9-11 Controlled Demolition. Dr. Jones has taught physics at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, for 21 years. In late 2005, he published a scientific paper, Why Indeed Did the World Trade Center Buildings Collapse?, in which he called for a serious investigation of the hypothesis that World Trade Center 7 and the Twin Towers were brought down not just by impact damage and fires, but through the use of prepositioned cutter charges. In his paper, Dr. Jones considers the official FEMA, NIST, and 9-11 Commission reports that fires plus impact damage alone caused the complete collapses of all three buildings. He presents evidence for the controlled demolition hypothesis, which is suggested by the available data, testable and falsifiable, and yet has not been analyzed in any of the reports funded by the U.S. government. I began this interview with Dr. Stephen Jones in Chicago at the 9-11 International Education and Strategy Conference on June 4, 2006, and we concluded our discussion in Los Angeles at the American Scholars Symposium on June 26, 2006. Dr. Stephen Jones, welcome. Uh, Thank you very much, Bonnie. Dr. Jones, you teach physics at the graduate level at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Could you describe what exactly your field of expertise is and what it is that you teach? All right. Well, I teach uh, Physics 121, which is principles of Newtonian mechanics for scientists and engineers. Uh, I teach... um, physical science. I've taught, and this could come up again any time, I'm sure, uh, electromagnetism, uh, archaeometry at the graduate level, and uh, see, we also had a course on quarks and leptons at the graduate level. Mostly now I'm teaching uh, Newtonian mechanics, which is an undergraduate course, and uh, a lot of fun working with the students on uh, conservation of momentum and so on, which does relate to the study of what actually brought the towers down, the World Trade Center towers. Could you tell us what archaeometry is? Archaeometry is uh, essentially the application of advanced physics and other scientific methods to archaeology. So, So we have artifacts from 
some site, we want to know what happened at the site, we apply physics techniques like X-ray fluorescence, uh, proton-induced X-ray emission. We have, we have a whole range of techniques available to help us sort out what, what went on at this site. And, of course, that's what we're doing at 9-11. We want to know what really happened. <laughs> and so it is uh, archaeometry. We, we have certain artifacts, certain samples, in other words, from the site. And uh, visual now, though, that, that's unusual in archaeology, I mean, to have actual visual evidence from the event that you're trying to study, in this case, 9-11. There's a lot of uh, video and photographic evidence. I first wanted to ask you what your initial reaction was on September 11, 2001. Did you have any questions about what was happening there, the official story? What was your reaction when you saw the towers come down? Yeah, well, actually, on the morning of September 11th, I was watching some TV. I was rushing to get to the university, so but I suppose like most everybody else, I was quite shocked and awed by the uh, uh, the collapse of the towers. Uh, I did have uh, at least one class that day. Of course, we discussed the matter, some there, but uh, it wasn't until I saw the collapse of Building 7 that it struck me, this is very strange. I mean, th- this is non-physical for this building to collapse straight down just caused by random fires and damage. And it fell very rapidly, too, when I measured the speed of the fall with students. When was it that you saw the collapse of World Trade Center 7? Yeah, well, see, that wasn't until much later. It would have been actually in 2005, the first part of 2005. So then it was almost four years after the events of September 11th that you began to question the official story? That's really true. I'm sort of a Johnny-come-lately, actually. I, once I saw the collapse of Building 7, I dived in and started doing analyses. And uh, fortunately, I came across Jim Hoffman's website as I began to study this. And uh, Jim has done a tremendous job of research. And he provides references, which I like, because then I can go and check things for myself. You know, For instance, on, on the sulfidation of steel... It's a technical term, but it's very puzzling. This sulfidation was found both in World Trade Center 7 steel as well as in Towers steel. And what it means is that uh, somehow sulfur had formed a eutectic. In other words, the steel had melted at high temperature. Now, the, uh, you know, this is beyond what the fires can be expected to do. Uh, way beyond that. And, and here's a very high temperature and formation of a eutectic with sulfur. That, that it turns out, fits completely with this research I've done on thermite. But at the time, I thought, man, I've got to check this. So I read the original paper. Some professors out in Massachusetts had published a short paper on the sulfidation. New York Times had covered it, too. So this is the greatest mystery uncovered so far. And uh, wasn't even mentioned in the uh, NIST report you know, or, or the 9-11 Commission, as far as I could see in that report. It's quite a tome, you know, you have to wade through. But uh, there it is. And uh, so I guess the point is, as how I got into this, I was nudged by a number of people to study it. But it was when I saw the collapse of Building 7, and then I got into the research uh, done by Jim Hoffman, things just started falling into place, boom, 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 you know. Like they say about the explosions in the towers, boom, 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 boom. Well, the, these uh, 
data just fit together and point very strongly to an inside job. You see, it's not just uh, the planes hitting the towers. And of course, the Building 7 was not even hit by a plane, so its collapse, it's a great stretch right there that it would fall because of the hijackers. Uh, Dr. Jones, you mentioned the word eutectic. What does that mean? Uh, eutectic is a, a mixture that lowers the melting point. So, for example, with ice, it melts typically at uh, 32 degrees. You get warmer than that, it, it melts. Uh, steel melts at 1,510 centigrade. I'd have to look that up in my paper, what that is. I'm so used to working now in centigrade, but it's around uh, oh, 2,500 Fahrenheit, roughly. But um, when you add sulfur to steel, now it will melt around 900 centigrade. If, if you have a high temperature enough so that the sulfur will penetrate into the steel, you see. And then now it will melt quickly. So uh, th this is an area that I have researched how do you reach these high temperatures in the structural steel with the presence of sulfur in such a way as to cut through the steel? Well, what I found out very quickly, and this is with others in the Scholars for 9-11 Truth Group. I, I must give credit, you know, because, because we're talking about this on the forum, you know, and trying to figure out these questions. But it turns out there's a form of thermite called thermate in which sulfur and potassium permanganate are added to the thermite, and when that is done, then you get this eutectic formation in the steel where the sulfur enters in, and, and then the steel just melts. It's, a, it's like a hot knife cutting through butter. A hot knife, you know, it's not just the pressure, it's melting, actually, the butter as you go through. This is what's happening with the sulfur added to thermite. I know this is a bit technical, but the point is, as we look at these data, I mean, everything just fits like a glove. And I can mention other evidences for thermite in these towers, too. Now, you speak of melted steel, yeah. but most people are saying, well, you know, the temperatures were not hot enough to melt steel. So are you speaking more specifically about how the steel was sliced? I mean, you're not saying that all the steel was melted. That's, that's absolutely correct. Now, you see, we have to be real careful here. The fires in the World Trade Center buildings were certainly not hot enough to melt the structural steel. Now, this is agreed on uh, by NIST scientists and others, Professor Eager and so on. We all agree. Those fires were not hot enough to melt steel. Nevertheless, there is evidence that a eutectic formed with sulfur, and then there's even evidence, as Professor Barnett pointed out, for evaporated steel. Now, steel evaporates at uh, around uh, 2860 centigrade. Fahrenheit, I'm sorry, I don't use too much. It's, it's something around 4,500 Fahrenheit. So, but, I mean, 2860 centigrade is where steel evaporates. Now, you can't possibly reach those temperatures, you see with the fires in the World Trade Center buildings, but you can reach those temperatures with thermite. Now, here's a, a distinction that I, I try to emphasize. The thermite reaction produces molten iron at a high temperature. 
molten iron. It's white hot molten iron, not not molten steel. The product is molten iron. Now that molten iron combined with sulfur is what will cut through steel. It, it melts. Yes, it, it melts its way through the structural steel. And it's hot enough, this thermite, that you can actually evaporate some steel. And this is what's observed, the sulfidation of the steel, the evaporation. And then uh, we've now looked at some samples of the previously molten metal, and we find iron in abundance. Uh, This is not molten aluminum. That was one, well explanation that fell by the wayside now because our experiments have shown this is not molten aluminum. (laughs) It's yellow hot and white hot and we have measured now the composition of this previously molten metal in two instances, abundant iron. And um, the result is still preliminary on the sulfur and the manganese, but we do see these elements in this previously molten Material. I mean, all these evidences point to thermite. And there's more evidences even, yeah, that I haven't even mentioned, but that are mentioned in my paper online. Now, when I say the results are preliminary with regard to molten iron, that, that is, that, that's not going to change. It's the quantity, yeah, we're, we're working now on quantifying, and that takes careful calibration and analysis to finish this up and to say, well, there's so much iron percentage, so much sulfur, so much manganese, so much potassium. And, uh, of course, that's what I'll be working on in the next uh, several weeks. Now, could you tell us exactly what thermite is and what the difference is between thermite and thermate? And also, in terms of the molten metal that was found below the surface, below the towers, Were you able to get any samples of that and test it? Yeah. See, you're, you're catching on to the chemistry here and the terminology. That's great. <laughs> okay, thermite is a mixture of aluminum powder and iron oxide powder. And now, this is a well-known uh, reaction. I've demonstrated it uh, with a colleague from chemistry in my class, for instance, and I will be demonstrating it this fall again. I mean, it's routinely demonstrated at universities. I think a lot of your listeners, if they've taken a chemistry or, well, physical science also, a class, they might well have seen the thermite reactions. It's very impressive, very hot, a bright white flash, and molten iron comes out, you see, and then this white ash, which is aluminum oxide. So again, the composition, well-known is aluminum powder and iron oxide powder. Now, that's thermite. There are variations on thermite. Uh, One of the principal variations is called thermate, and that uh, involves the addition of sulfur and potassium permanganate, uh, hence the manganese in the residue. Uh, And those are added to the thermite. And now this material, when it's reacted will cut through steel very rapidly, more rapidly than ordinary thermite. I'm speaking with physicist and co-founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Thermite, a case for 9-11 controlled demolition. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, what form does thermate 
come in? Is it, is it a powder or liquid? What is it? Oh, typically a powder, yeah. And so uh, I talked about this yesterday, actually, in my talk. Uh, and again, this is one of the scholars on Scholars for 9-11 Truth. <laughs> he, he did some research. So we're, we're all wondering, well, how could they, uh, whoever did this, use thermite, and there's abundant evidence, as I've said, or thermate, okay. I'll just say thermite because there's so many variations of which thermate is one. So how could they get the thermite to actually be positioned in such a way that it would cut through the steel columns, which is traditionally done with monomolecular explosives like TNT, RDX, HMX. But in this case, we have all this evidence for thermite. So how would they do that with thermite? Well, there's an invention that goes back to the 90s. It's been patented. And what it is is a cylinder. If you can imagine a a cylinder, uh, you can make it whatever length you need. Some of these columns are three feet wide, you know, of steel. And you load the cylinder with thermite. And then there's a, a linear groove along one side. So imagine a cylinder and then a, uh, a groove along this side and there's a nozzle that sticks out a ways <laughs> now what happens and then you put that nozzle against the steel and it's described in the patent in some detail when the thermite is made to ignite which isn't easy by the way and we have done experiments on this at BYU how do you ignite thermite uh, but anyway so when the thermite is ignited you have this molten iron with sulfur, if you have added sulfur, <laughs> and that molten iron comes out through this groove. It, it blasts its way out, actually. And now it's just, it really is very much like a, a white-hot knife. It, uh, quite literally, it's molten liquid iron at white-hot temperature. You can imagine what, and, and that just slices through the steel, especially when you have uh, sulfur added. And it just, cuts right through the steel very rapidly. So, so we found this uh, invention is out there, and certainly the technique for using uh, thermite to bring these buildings down is, uh, is available. Now, have you considered how this thermite could have been applied, for instance, to the Twin Towers? Would it have to have been applied to the steel core columns? And assuming they're all covered, how... Uh, how would the thermite be applied? And secondly, I want to know, how did you get on to thermite? Is this typically used in a building demolition? Mm-hmm. Let me start with the second question. First, uh, I got on to thermite because uh, first I learned about the molten metal pools. And this data I mentioned from the metallurgists uh, in Massachusetts, the sulfidation at high temperatures of the steel. Those two pieces of data combined suggest thermite very strongly with sulfur added. Um, Then when I saw the molten metal pouring out of the South Tower, we haven't even mentioned that yet. That's even additional evidence and probably the strongest, well, uh, certainly among the strongest uh, evidences we have for thermite. You see this molten metal pouring out of the South Tower just minutes before its collapse. And at the very corner where you see twisting then in just just minutes. Now now the question of how would they do this, of course now we have to get into speculation a a bit because how they could have done it is one thing, but uh, until 
someone confesses. But these uh, people that were loading in the thermite uh, incendiary would need to uh, have access to the central columns, which you, you would obtain, I presume, through the elevator shafts. It's not like a person riding the elevator would see this. This would be in the columns uh, behind. But once you had access into that region, th- then, of course, you could work and a person could uh, apply these cylinders filled with thermite to the steel columns. I see. So the thermite would be contained within a cylinder right. made out of what material? The Yes, the cylinder has to be able to withstand high temperatures for a while, and so tungsten is the metal of choice. Actually, ceramic would work also because a ceramic can stand these... Uh, very high temperatures. Okay, so let's say that the uh, the thermite is in a, a tungsten cylinder and it is somehow uh, attached to the columns sure. so that it wouldn't explode until whoever was doing this wanted it to explode. Right. So how would it be exploded to bring the building down? Yeah. Again, the, the scholars have looked into these questions. These are great questions and they arise naturally. So it turns out I need to explain a variation on thermite called superthermite now to, to answer that question. <laughs> We're learning lots of physics and chemistry here. Uh, not something, by the way, that structural engineers would ordinarily consider, but uh, someone with a broad background. I, I do have a fairly broad background because of my work in archaeometry. And so now we can bring that to bear on these questions. So superthermite is a mixture of, again, aluminum powder and iron powder. The difference is that it's extremely fine, less than about 120 nanometers uh, for these particles of aluminum and iron oxide. Now, when you mix the extremely fine particles of aluminum and iron oxide together and get that to react, it explodes. So, see, the ordinary thermite, the more coarse, is still fine, but... (laughs) The more coarse uh, uh, mixture will burn in seconds, but without an explosion. That's called an incendiary. If you want an explosion, then you go to the super fine, ultra fine uh, powders, and now it's explosive. Now, there are what are called super thermite matches. And these are, you can just look on the Los Alamos National Lab website and they uh, brag about their development of these matches. I mean, it's a, it, they're used in fireworks. This is not, uh, I guess it is rocket science <laughs> at some level, <laughs> but, um, you know, at least uh, firework science. But anyway, so these super thermite matches have this super thermite that I described encapsulated with wires going in to the capsule. So you, what you do then is you send an electric current through the superthermite. The superthermite ignites, and that in turn will set off thermite or any variation of thermite that you, like superthermite or thermate that you have. So there's all these variations. It's really quite a remarkable high-energy-density compound. 
It's well, I mean, you can buy this stuff on eBay. It's not like it's a secret, you know. And as I say, uh, demonstrated in universities uh, all over. So anyway, now, now there's one other element then. So once you've got these super thermite matches that can be triggered electrically, then what you do is you have a radio signal to say, okay, now send the current through the thermite, super thermite match that will ignite your thermite charge. And now you can, through radio control from a distance without you know, a lot of wires then, it just uh, radio controlled, you can set off these cutter charges uh, at will. How does a, a radio signal ignite the super thermite? How does that work? The radio signal uh, sends uh, your signal to a radio receiver. So a certain code, you send it to this receiver, it picks it up. That, in turn, will trigger an electric current, for instance, with a, a relay. So you trigger a current now. So it's not the radio wave itself that sets off the super thermite match, but rather the radio signal is used to uh, close a relay to send a current through the... And there's various ways to do that, but to generate a current that goes through the super thermite match that into it's quite straightforward, really. It's so what you do, you can do this with fireworks. You can set those off with a radio signal, and instead of the firework, you put your thermite there. You see, quite spectacular. That would be quite spectacular. Now, let me foresee a question that I, I often get asked, and that is, how come the uh, explosions occurred right near where the planes went in? Now, granted, it's an hour or so, about an hour or so later that you see these explosions, but how could you arrange to have explosions where the planes went in, I mean, so that it would look like the planes uh, an hour later somehow caused these explosions? Well, you see, uh, that's fairly straightforward. A person then would simply arrange to have a number of uh, thermite charges placed in the building at different floors and levels so that after the plane goes in, now you program your computer, okay, we're going to start then uh, at floor 80, you know, South Tower. It's right near where the plane went in. And it's just uh, at about floor 80 that we see this thermite flowing out of the building just before the collapse of the building. It's quite dramatic. Yes, I was going to ask you how the uh, collapse could have been synchronized. Then are you implying that it could have been done or would have been done with a computer? Sure, yeah. Uh, there's no doubt that, uh, you see, a computer would be used to send out the signal. So once you know where the plane goes in, now you program, we'll start at floor 80, and here's the sequence. The sequence would have been uh, calculated, of course, uh, before. It takes weeks, actually, to bring a building down symmetrically. Uh, I mean, it's easy to get a building to topple over, you know, <laughs> but as I've read about controlled demolition, and I, I interviewed a demolition expert to learn more. I, I mean, these guys take weeks and software, and it takes a lot of work to pull off a controlled demolition in such a way that the building comes straight down as opposed to just tipping over and wiping out buildings all around. That's the way that buildings came down, right? It is pretty much straight down, in particular Building 7. is a beautiful uh, demolition. I mean, it came straight down onto its footprint. And I, as I read these uh, 
demolition experts said, wow, it looked like a controlled demolition to me. This is right after 9-11, you know, before it became verboten to talk about explosives and controlled demolition. But early on, these guys were saying, yeah, it, it really did look like an implosion. That's the term they use, where you bring the building straight down onto its footprint. I'm speaking with physicist and co-founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Thermite, a case for 9-11 controlled demolition. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, in a commercial controlled demolition, is thermite used or do they use something else? Yeah. See, in a conventional demolition, no, you would use uh, HMX, RDX, these uh, monomolecular uh, explosives. So the, the trick is here, and this is on the Internet too, there are tags that are added by the manufacturers, and this is required by law, I understand, so that when these explosives are set off, now there's a residual tracer, a tag, that says, oh, this is manufactured by Acme Explosive Company. We go to Acme, and we say, who bought this, you know, and so on. You see, you can trace back who is responsible. With thermite, you don't have those tags, you see. It's very clever, really. And, of course, another thing about thermite is the end products, you see, is molten iron and aluminum oxide. Well, iron and aluminum are typically found in buildings. It's a little tricky then to sort out, was this uh, from thermite or something in the building? However, when you have, when you have sulfidation of structural steel at high temperature and you have previously molten metal that so, shows sulfur in it, high iron content, but otherwise... It really doesn't look like steel. I mean, maybe there's a little component, but it's mostly this iron, which is the product of thermite plus sulfur. You say, wow, these guys used sulfur added to thermite. In other words, thermite in significant quantities to bring these buildings out. Things are fitting together like a glove. Now, I get uh, asked, are you 100% sure? And as a scientist, I have to say, look... uh, in science, it's hard to be 100%, you know, <laughs> about things. And uh, we, we continue to study. I'm just saying that the data, all these data elements, point very strongly to controlled demolition. I mean, yes, I, I'm really confident of that conclusion. Now, last November, I, I, it was more, wow, there, there's all these points. We need to investigate this. Well, we have been investigating it diligently. And now the conclusion is, is very strong. Of course, we'll continue, you know. And uh, But when you have our, our experiments, uh, which we added sulfur to thermite and set that off, and yes, we, we observed, which is in the literature, how quickly this cuts through steel. I mean, a fraction of a, set, a second, in our case, uh, the steel was eaten through, cut through. And, uh, and then, then you have the results out of Massachusetts, uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, I as I recall, these professors and metallurgists there. The same same result with actual steel from WTC seven and the towers now melted through with sulfidation at high temperatures. I mean, hello, the, all of this points to thermite used to pull off a controlled demolition. Just a point of clarification. So the evidence the evidence of the composition of the molten metal in the pits 
the iron and the sulfur, etc. Was that data found in the NIST report or the FEMA report? How do people know, because so much evidence was destroyed, most of it, what the composition of this molten metal was? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a toughie because, as you say, this material was destroyed. This structural steel was shipped to China and Asia. In this case, um, the FEMA report does include in Appendix C this discussion by Professor Barnett and others of the sulfidation at high temperature of the structural steel, you see, which points to a cutting agent and, and thermate is, uh, is implied here. There may be others that would result in sulfidation, but then we have this other evidence for the thermite derivatives. But uh, uh, no, it's not so easy just to get a sample. In our case, we had to scramble... Uh, working with um, people in New York who had obtained samples. I mean, the provenience is fairly good on these samples, but these are not obtained through official channels. I mean, it's very difficult even to get photographs from the NIST, you know. I I mean, (laughs) our group, our colleagues have asked for release. They say they may release some photographs, but not all. They're not, they say they're not going to release the Building 7 photographs until they finish, whenever that is, the analysis of Building 7. Well, that's been delayed. And I mean, why wouldn't they give us the data? Can't we look at it too as scientists? I mean, let's open this up. Let's be transparent. Let's be a society in which the First Amendment and freedom of information are respected, you see. That's, unfortunately, that's not being done. <laughs> Could you describe exactly how the collapse happens, at what angle the columns need to be sliced, and how how the building actually is able to fall down on top of itself? Yeah, let me approach that. Um, In ordinary controlled demolitions, then the company will go in and weaken, actually cut the columns at lower levels before setting off explosives at higher levels. And this is to ensure that the building does collapse straight down. I mean, after all, these solid columns up through the center of most of these steel frame high-rises provide resistance to falling straight down, right? I mean, these enormous steel columns. So you have to cut them down low. Uh, And in this case, uh, we have evidence for, and again, this is photographic evidence now, but, but eyewitness evidence too, like William Rodriguez, of a cutting action on these columns down deep in the basement long before, an hour before, in Rodriguez's case, uh, roughly an hour before the buildings uh, finally did collapse. So this weakening would take place in the columns. Now, what we have for photographic evidence, I wish I could show this over the radio, but uh, uh, it is available at various places online. But what you have is a a photograph, more more than one, but in particular this one column which has been cut at about a 45-degree angle. So not straight across, but 45-degree angle. And you can see now the molten metal residue on the outside and on the inside of the column. Now, now the trick is on this, this evidence fits in with the others for the use of thermite specifically to cut through these uh, central core columns. And and by cutting at a 45-degree angle, now there is just not 
support for the huge column above. Not much. I mean, it, it will now easily slide off under a provocation, you see, such as the pressure of things falling from above. <laughs> I see. So the, the columns would be sliced at an angle so that, that they would slide off of each yeah. other. That's right. So later, as the building begins to collapse, this column then would slide off the support below. Yeah. I see. Could you talk a little bit about the color of the fires and the flashes and the molten metal that is visible in the video? Of course, uh, the study of these samples is in conjunction with the visual evidence, which is quite abundant that we have the the uh, videographic and the photographic evidence of the uh, immense quantities of yellow-hot molten metal pouring out of the uh, South Tower just minutes before its collapse. I mean, this is even discussed in the uh, NIST report. Now, uh, in addition, I, I should add, though, that NIST said, well, this could be aluminum. That was their guess. But we have ruled out aluminum. We've done experiments with uh, molten aluminum. Uh, we heat the steel pan to yellow, white-hot temperature, yellow-hot essentially for the bulk of the pan. And as we pour out the aluminum, which is inside at this same temperature, close to it, uh, the aluminum as it pours out is still silvery. I mean, it looks like aluminum foil, basically, <laughs> and uh, in daylight conditions which is what we had at the World Trade Center, of course. So this material pouring out of the building, as I first saw that, and as I learned that NIST said, well, this could be aluminum, I said, no. You need, you need more than just structural engineers. You need someone who's familiar with molten aluminum, which I had worked with previously, um, but, but never not at yellow-hot uh, temperature. So um, we heat up the steel pan. It gets yellow. It incandesces yellow, as you would expect. And actually, the aluminum incandesces, but it's just very faint. So as you pour the aluminum out of the pan, the aluminum with high reflectivity and very low emissivity, which means very low emittance of this incandescent light, it still looks silvery. It still looks aluminum-colored. That's my experience. And um, my colleague, who's used molten aluminum for many years, Wes Lifferth, said, yeah, that's... It's silvery, you know, silvery straw, gray color uh, at all temperatures uh, as, you, as you pour it out in daylight conditions. So the conclusion is that this uh, molten material, uh, this molten metal flowing out of the building in large quantities just before the collapse could not be molten aluminum. And furthermore, it comes from uh, floor 80, 81, right there. And uh, therefore, this is the region and the corner at which we see collapse ensuing. Furthermore, you see a white flare just before the appearance of the molten metal. And this white flare with uh, a white ash floating away, well, again, those are signature characteristics of thermite. Thermite is a reaction of aluminum powder and iron oxide powder or some other metal oxide. And the reaction has this characteristic, this extremely bright white flare, the white ash, and then you see the yellow white hot flowing molten iron coming out of the thermite reaction. The, all these characteristics are there. You have written this incredible paper, Why Indeed Did the World Trade Center Buildings Collapse? You discuss 13 
examples that show controlled demolition. And what are those 13 examples? All right, well, let's look at the uh, at these points then in my paper, and I hope people will actually take the opportunity to read the paper, Why Indeed Did the WTC Buildings Collapse, which is uh, available. The easiest way to find it is just to Google on Stephen Jones Thermite. That'll be the first thing that pops up, I'm sure. But uh, the first point has to do with the molten metal observed flowing out of the South Tower and found in pools beneath both towers and uh, World Trade Center 7. And, of course, we've discussed that at some length. The second point has to do with sulfidation observed in structural steel found both at uh, World Trade Center 7 and in recovered structural steel from the towers area. And uh, both of these samples show very high temperature attack of the steel uh, from, from some agent that was at high temperature and contained sulfur. So point number three has to do with the uh, rapid and symmetrical and complete collapse of World Trade Center 7. And that is discussed in my paper, but it's discussed at greater length and certainly with uh, mathematical precision, much more than I have done here. Uh, a paper by Professor Ken Cutler, a professor of mathematics, uh, at Brigham Young University, uh, much to my surprise, he presented this paper to me, and I, of course, was thrilled to read it. And it discusses the collapse of World Trade Center 7 and the, how fast it collapses. That's my point number three, but he's written a paper on this now. It's much better than my point number three. And this paper is available in the Journal of 911studies.com online. I'm speaking with physicist and co-founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, Dr. Stephen Jones. Today's show, Thermite, a case for 9-11 controlled demolition. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And Professor Jones, what is your point number four? Point number four has to do with the fact that uh, no previous skyscraper these high-rise steel frame buildings had ever collapsed before due to fire. A uh, very important point. The squibs, this is the point of the plumes of dust and debris being ejected far below the demolition region or the pulverization region. <laughs> the early drop of the North Tower, this is something we've looked at. I point out here that it's one of those areas, it's not the most important point, certainly, but if NIST would just release the videos and photos that they have, which they have about 300 hours of videos and over 6,000 photographs, it was reported in uh, various publications that the North Tower had an antenna, and the antenna moved down first, just momentarily, but first moved down. Yeah, surprising thing, uh, if, if the official story is correct. So it needs uh, further study. Um, eyewitness accounts, lots of eyewitness accounts of loud explosions and flashes, not just up where the planes went in, but down on lower levels. The ejection of steel beams and these uh, uh, debris plumes upward and outward from the towers indicating um, explosives. 
the rapid collapse, conservation of momentum and energy. This is discussed in a paper in the Journal of 9-11 Studies by a mechanical engineer, Gordon Ross. He takes it much further than I take it in my paper. So skip that section, read Gordon Ross's paper. <laughs> so, But he, he really does a bang-up job on that. Um, controlled demolition implosions require scale, point number 10, right, uh, as pointed out by demolition experts. Demolishing the, a building so that it collapses straight down into its own footprint, this feat requires such skill that only a handful of demolition experts in the world will attempt it. It's not easy to get a building to fall straight down like that. And yet Building 7 and the towers, but Building 7 is such a beautiful example of a building falling straight down into its footprint. Uh, steel columns, the temperature needed. I discussed at this stage uh, some of these other engineering papers and, and offer my critique of them. The Byzantine Zoo paper, the NIST report. I go through, you know, that NIST report is lengthy. And it's very interesting reading the actual models contracted by NIST to see what would happen under fire endurance tests. The actual models did not fail. So that's discussed further here. Lots of good stuff here. People got to read. <laughs> but not just my paper now. There's this Journal of 9-11 Studies. has some great things. And then this, number 13, uh, the failure to show visualizations. That's the last point, I think, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, this is now quoting out of the new civil engineering Journal. So here you have structural engineers complaining about the NIST report. Now people sometimes say to me, "Well, you're not a structural engineer." No, but I do archaeometry, you know. And is a structural engineer going to tell you what this yellow molten metal is? I, you know, it's, not, it's beyond their expertise. But it is something that I have studied and done experiments with, uh, both molten metal and thermite. Visualizations are routinely done with a type of modeling that NIST did, a computer uh, finite element modeling. But, in fact, uh, well, let me just quote from the uh, New Civil Engineering Journal. World Trade Center disaster investigators uh, at NIST are refusing to show computer visualizations of the collapse of the Twin Towers despite calls from leading structural and fire engineers. It's pretty serious, very, very serious critique from structural engineers and fire engineers of the uh, NIST report. It's not just me it's complaining about uh, this official story. So then, Dr. Jones, the color of the molten metal flowing out of the tower just as the building begins to explode, also the color of the ash and the smoke, as well as the composition of the molten pools at the bottom of the towers, these all indicate to you the use of thermite or thermate. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, thermate is uh, essentially sulfur added to thermite. All of these uh, evidences come together and point to the use of thermate in the destruction of the towers, I mean, involved in this uh, in this terrible disaster on 9-11. By the way, I thought of a way to get people to read my paper. <laughs> you see, <laughs> if they want to actually see the flowing metal, can't do that over the radio. But if you go to my paper online, Jones Thermite, and in there, as you read down the first section, there is a clickable item there that'll take you right to the video showing the metal flowing out of the tower just before its collapse and from the point at which it 
fails within moments, minutes. And uh, furthermore, there's also video showing uh, thermite experiments. So it's kind of fun to, to, to compare those. And we do actually have side-by-side -side comparisons referenced in my paper. The thermite reaction, which we know is thermite, right? That's what we did to get this, <laughs> what they did. It's a group in the United Kingdom. And then the molten metal pouring out of the building with the white, wispy ash floating away. Could you explain how any theory that is going to adequately account for the destruction of the World Trade Center towers in, say, 10 to 15 seconds, how any theory has to take into consideration all of the things that happened? Because people will come up with a question like, we'll say, one of the squibs, for instance, that is visible coming out of one of the towers could have been caused by a collapsing floor. But then, of course, that doesn't explain the molten metal at the bottom of the towers. Could you talk a little bit about how a theory has to account for all of the evidence? In science, we start with uh, observations and the entire body of uh, evidences that we can get our hands on. And that's good science. And then we come up with an explanation that covers all the observations, not just some small subset. So, for example, um, here in this study, we look at the molten metal. We look at the molten metal pools. We look at the color of the metal as it comes out. We look at the white ash coming off. We look at the in intense white reaction region that precedes the flowing yellow metal, uh, yellow liquid metal. We look at samples of previously molten metal, you know, and we look at conservation of momentum, conservation of energy. We look at the whatever happens during the collapse itself, not just up to the initiation of the collapse, which, by the way, is what the NIST report says they are doing, is what they did. It's just up to the point where the building is poised to collapse, is their terminology, or initiation of the collapse. Then they stop. No, we say, no, we're going to look at all the data and uh, try to come up with a cohesive picture. That's the only way to get uh, a reasonable explanation. That's just good science. To put blinders on and say, well, we'll only look at data up to the point where the building starts to collapse, as NIST did. I'm sorry, but that ignores an enormous body of data of, of what we see after and during the collapse, which points uh, rather, in fact, compellingly to uh, the use of uh, pre-planted cutter charges in these buildings. That's where we're getting most of our data. I mean, here's a controlled demolition. It's going to happen. And then just as it, just before it happens, now you stop. You don't look. Well, how do you know <laughs> it's going to be controlled demolition? Well, it's, when, it's when she starts to collapse. I mean, it's actually collapsing. And the, the plumes of dust shooting out and the speed at which it collapses and you hear explosions and you see flashes. All of these things or observed at the collapse of the uh, World Trade Center. And so, you know, to ignore all that body of data is, 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 is I'm sorry, it's very bad science. What else can you call it? Now, now, pathological science is characterized by this attitude. Well, we'll start with a conclusion and see what facts we can find to fit and sustain our pre-drawn conclusion. That's pathological science. <laughs> now, if people start by saying, well... I mean, these, these buildings were brought down by airplanes hitting them. 
even though Building 7 wasn't hit by a plane. Nevertheless, all three skyscrapers were brought down by two airplanes. <laughs> okay, it's a little bit ridiculous when you think about that, but, but if you start with that and, and if you look only for data which support that conclusion, well, I'm sorry, that's bad science. It's, it's what we say in science, a hypothesis has to be falsifiable in order to be good science. In other words, you have to be able to test it and you have to be able to rule it out if the evidence goes contrary to your hypothesis. Now, when I talk to people, a lot of people, it's just it's just not falsifiable. I mean, you can't tell me that this is other than hijacked planes by Muslims that brought those towers. I mean, it's just a foregone conclusion. I don't want to see anything about molten metal unless you can explain it on the basis of, you know, these planes. Well, how about the molten metal where a plane didn't hit? Indeed, why did the World Trade Center 7 collapse so rapidly? straight down onto its footprint. Oh, no, I don't want to hear about that. I know it was by these two hijacked planes, but the planes didn't hit Building 7. Oh, stop, stop now. You're going too far. I don't want... This is what I get from people. It's it's totally unscientific. It's as if this society is mesmerized by this myth, this official story of 9-11 being due to the Muslims. Everyone knows it. You can't challenge this myth. If you do, you're a conspiracy kook. Well, I'm sorry, good science cuts through all that nonsense. It doesn't care. When I analyze these samples of previously molten metal and I see iron and fluorine and manganese in abundance, you know, and, and some aluminum and, and all these tracers, it is not, it doesn't care whether I'm conservative or uh, liberal, Republican, Democrat, Green, it doesn't care. I look at the data, and the electron microprobe gives me the answer. If I sent the sample to Timbuktu in Mali, you know, they'd get this, if they had the equipment, <laughs> they'd get the same answer. It doesn't matter, color your skin, religion, nothing. It's just an experiment that's done, it's objective. And, and for me, to have people just say, I don't want to see the data, I, I, I don't want you to challenge the official story, which everyone knows, you know in advance and only give me data that support that that is just so contrary to science to logic to reason to humanity it makes me want to scream <laughs> please look at the data look at all of the data be a little bit scientific and critical in your thinking people please just consider the data it's overwhelming now the evidence for an inside job of course there are terrorists out there but what we're saying is there's a criminal element there must be involved in pre-planting these cutter charges in the World Trade Center towers. To ignore that is to imperil our society. Not to, not to sustain a lie. I mean, sustaining a lie doesn't protect our society somehow. It's getting at the truth and removing a criminal element that would do such a thing. And if you don't believe me, well, read my paper, study it out for yourself, think as you do it, think, why were there no air defenses that day? Multi-trillion dollar system. How did these planes get through the, after the first tower was hit? And then the second tower, you still have 38 minutes before the Pentagon was hit. Where is our air defense system? You know, the year before, 67 times we scrambled jets to intercept, not necessarily shoot down. In fact, none of them were shot down. <laughs> 67 times you had errant 
planes, uh, which were military jets, were scrambled to intercept and see if is this hijacked or what. It takes minutes. After the second tower was hit, we still had 38 minutes, plenty of time, for numerous interceptions to occur. The plane just went right in the Pentagon, is what we're told. And so what happened to our system? I mean, this, again, implies some inside operation. It's like Colonel Bowman said, if we had done nothing on that day, the military, the administration had done nothing, just let the normal procedures happen. We would have 3,000, well, several thousand. Anyway, the first tower might have been hit. I'm, I'll guarantee that. But the second tower, the Pentagon, we could have prevented that with just the normal procedures, the normal air defenses, which for some reason were shut down ineffective that day. Now, if it's just incompetence, why wasn't someone punished, you know? <laughs> no one was punished. No, I, I, the, incompetence, the incompetence theory, I'm afraid, applies to us as Americans if we don't think about these things. We're being incompetent if we don't think about it. Don't blame it on the incompetence of the administration if you don't study it yourself. You're being incompetent if you don't check these things out and think about it for yourself. Dr. Jones, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Something happening here. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Jones, author of the scientific paper, Why Indeed Did the World Trade Center Buildings Collapse? Dr. Jones is professor of physics at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and co-founder of 9-11 Scholars for Truth. Visit their website at www.st911.org. That's www.st911.org. Dr. Jones is editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, which is a peer-reviewed, open-access, electronic-only journal covering the whole of research related to September 11, 2001. All content is freely available online at www.journalof911studies.com. That's www.journalof911studies.com. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm 